Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. And as you do so, let me say what a pleasure it's been for me to be with you this past weekend. Uh, I've enjoyed greatly uh, being among you. I've appreciated the warmth of your welcome, and it's been great to put uh, flesh and blood faces to names and faces that I've seen uh, on the internet. You may gather from my accent that I'm not from here. <laughs> In case you didn't get it, I'm a Scot from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. Please don't think I'm English. I'm from the great city of Glasgow, the largest city in Scotland, not the prettiest city, that would be Edinburgh, but the best city. And this morning, I want to reflect with you on this fourth chapter in the book of Revelation. And in case you're wondering, I need to tell you that I'm not a premillennialist, I'm not an amillennialist and I'm not a post-millennialist. I'm not a preterist. I'm not an idealist. I'm not a historicist. And I'm not a futurist. Well, maybe you're thinking, well, what on earth is left? <laughs> well, I'm a Jesus Christist. Maybe you think, well, that sounds a little arrogant, and perhaps it does, but what I mean by that is this, that Jesus Christ is the epicenter of the Bible from beginning to end. He is the great controlling reality on every page of Holy Scripture. He is the great subject of Holy Scripture. And the very opening words of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show His servants the things that must soon take place, immediately placards for us that the revelation is supremely about Jesus Christ. And if you miss that, you miss everything that revelation is actually about. Revelation isn't a railway timetable. It is an impressionist painting that seeks through images and symbols and signs that are often bizarre to us, but which in the main are culled from the Old Testament, to say to a persecuted, marginalized, suffering church, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why the book of Revelation is so remarkably relevant for the Christian church today. It has been for many centuries for the Christian church under the domination and yoke of dark Islam. But increasingly in the West, in your country and in mine, Christianity is being not only mocked but marginalized. And not only being marginalized, being penalized. And not only being penalized, but increasingly being brought to a place of suffering. Our Lord Jesus Christ told us this would be the case. In this world, you will have tribulation. 
your country and mine for many centuries, mine longer than yours, have lived on the capital of our Christian history and heritage, but that's almost exhausted. And the book of Revelation is a timely reminder to us that in the midst of the chaos and the confusion and the mayhem of this dark and ever-darkening world, Jesus Christ is Lord. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. After this, after the seven letters to the seven churches which the risen Christ gave through His servant John, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first thing John is shown is a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, a rainbow that had the appearance not of the multicolored, variegated glory of the rainbow, but a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. And immediately, we're being confronted with images that not only stretch the imagination, but that confound the imagination. And there's a reason for that. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. That is the, the perfect, multifaceted, one person of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
The book of Revelation is the easiest book in the Bible to understand. <laughs> Whenever I say that, I get the same reaction. But actually, it is the easiest book in the Bible to understand. God has not given us His Word to puzzle us, to confuse us and perplex us. God has given us His Word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The very opening words of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the parting of the curtain concerning Jesus Christ. This is the great theme of the book of Revelation. I don't mean that there aren't passages that leave you buzzing in your head and confused in your mind as you try and make sense of images and symbols that seem just literally out of this world. But God has given us His Word, and not least originally to His suffering church at the end of the first century, not to confuse and perplex, not to leave the church wondering whether we are amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, futurist, preterist, historicist, or idealist. God has given us His Word to show us the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Some years ago, a fellow minister of mine in Scotland was telling me of a young man in his church who had come to faith. He was a, a soldier in the British Army, and he was an uneducated young lad. But the Lord had wonderfully saved him, and he started coming to church. And one day he said to my friend, Dennis, the minister, he said, Mr. Sutherland, I've been reading the book of Revelation. What on earth is it all about? And the minister was about to say something, but he stopped and said, well, John, what do you think it's really about? And the uneducated soldier thought for a moment and then said, we're going to win. And the minister says, you've got it in one. You've got it in one. That's what God is saying throughout the length and breadth of the book of Revelation to the church of Jesus Christ. At the end of the first century, John is on the island of Patmos. He's there because of his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. The church is struggling, it's suffering. The church, as we see from the seven letters in 2 and 3 of Revelation, is a church that has become infiltrated and infected with heresy, moral heresy, theological heresy. Satan seems to be winning the battle. And John has given this revelation, this unveiling of Jesus Christ, to say to the church then and to say to the church throughout the ages, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King of all kings. He is Lord of all lords. He reigns. What we often forget when we read the book of Revelation is that it is supremely a pastoral letter. It was a letter sent to the churches. It wasn't a theological treatise on eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. It was a pastoral letter. 
that was to be read in the churches because God wants to encourage His persecuted, marginalized, suffering saints. And how does God do that? Through the length and breadth of revelation. He does it essentially in three words. Behold your God. Right at the beginning in chapter 1, John is given this resplendent unveiling of the Son of Man. And that casts its long shadow over the whole book of Revelation. And so, when you read Revelation, you have not to miss the wood for the trees. You're not to get hung up on the living creatures covered with eyes. Sounds almost grotesque, doesn't it? Covered with eyes. You think, oh, I don't think I want to know about that. <laughs> covered with eyes. And then you have the lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, the beast with ten horns, seven heads with ten crowns, the beast who looks like a lamb, but who speaks like a dragon. Then you've got the 144,000, you've got 24 elders, you've got four living creatures, you've got plagues here and plagues there and trumpets there and trumpets here, and you think, well, what, what's this all about? And the Lord is saying, do you not know what it's all about? It's all about my son, Jesus Christ, who reigns at the right hand of God to bless, to preserve, to care for, to protect, and to watch over His people. So, this morning I want very briefly, uh, or as briefly as I'm ever able to do anything, to, to think with you about some of the great notes that are being struck for us right at the vestibule to Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5 are really almost like the vestibule, the entry point into the book of Revelation. But like Psalms 1 and 2, the first two Psalms of the Psalter, are the entry vestibule into the rest of the Psalter. They highlight and demarcate the great themes that will run through the Psalter. And in chapters 4 and 5 in Revelation, we have the great themes that will run like golden threads through the whole of the rest of the book. And what is it that John sees or is shown in this fourth chapter? There are three things, essentially, that John is shown. And remember, this is a pastoral letter. Never forget that. Wherever you are in Revelation, it's a pastor writing to encourage his people in the Lord. What is it John is shown? First of all, he's shown an open door in heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. I cannot but think that this must have been just a huge encouragement to the Christians to whom John is writing, an open door in heaven. There is access to the Most High God for His people. Keep that in your mind. There is access to the Most High God for His people. Heaven is not 
remote and far off. It is not cut off. There is an open door. And remember, of course, that John himself had written somewhat earlier in his gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the open door of access to God. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man or woman enter, they shall be saved. And I've little doubt that John would expect his readers to think back and to hear the echo of John chapter 10. There is an open door because God in His grace, in His Son, who is Himself the grace of God, has opened a door of access into His nearer presence for His people. John sees an open door, and we'll come back to that. But secondly, he sees an occupied throne. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Can you imagine this letter being read for the first time in the churches of Jesus Christ? What is it they would hear as they looked around at the all-powerful Roman Empire where Caesar seemed to straddle and bestraddle the whole known earth? Caesar, Ipsi, Dixit, Caesar has spoken. The man in Rome has spoken. All must bow down and worship. And John says, I was caught up into heaven, and what did I see? I saw a throne and someone seated on that throne. God's people, as they listen to that, would surely be recalibrated in their minds and hearts. There is a dominion and a power above and beyond that of Rome. You know, when Paul writes in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, he was writing to a church in Rome that knew all about power. Rome's power was unrivaled. They conquered everything and went everywhere and planted Roman domination. Rome was noted above all for power, but, says Paul, there is another power at work in this world greater than the power of Rome. The gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation. And here John is being shown a throne and one seated on that throne. And we'll come back to that as well. Keep that in your mind. There is a dominion and a power and a rule above all earthly human rules. And this nation and my nation needs to come to terms with that. That the last word in your nation and mine is not the presidential power or the Supreme Court or Parliament or the Queen or our Prime Minister. 
It belongs to him who is on the throne of the cosmos and who rules the heavens and the earth and who bends the cosmos to the doing of his will for the blessing of his son and the perfecting of his church. So John sees an open door. He sees an occupied throne. And then he sees and hears unceasing worship in heaven. I'm not going to get into who are the 24 elders, who are the four living creatures. They are the backcloth, if you like. I'm not saying they're unimportant, but they are the backcloth because what is it John sees? Here he is on the island of Patmos, separated from the people of God, exiled for his faith in Jesus Christ part of a marginalized, suffering people who are being pressed all the while to conform to the culture. And the Lord says, John, you need to see this. You need to see what's going on in heaven. And what John sees and hears is unceasing worship. Now, there is much no doubt that the Lord is teaching John and the church in those days and the church throughout history, and not least us here this morning through that, that vision. But surely John is being reminded, and the church of God through John, that the first great calling of the church of God in this world is to worship God. You were made for God and not only by God, and you were made to worship God. You become your truest self when you worship God. And John is being shown this magnificent picture of all heaven, ceaselessly worshiping the Lord day and night, day and night, crying, holy, 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 is the Lord God of hosts, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And I've little doubt that the Lord is saying to John and through John to the church, yes, your lives are embattled. The world, the flesh, and the devil, that unholy trinity are conspiring against you. All the powers that be are seeking to squeeze you into their mold. Your first calling in life is to worship God. And it is as we become the worshiping people that God has called us to be that we are best equipped to face the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's when God is centerpiece in our gatherings, when we gather for His sake. Yes, we come to be blessed. We come to be encouraged. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're going through dark times, difficult times. Maybe circumstances have all but overwhelmed you, and you've come seeking help from the Lord. Please, God, He will give you that help. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not here first to get. We are here first to give. We are here to glory in God. 
And we are here to discover that that's where my help will be found. When my life is recentered in the Lord, when my mind is recalibrated to His praise, don't you find when you sing the praises of the Lord that there is a reintegrating work of the Holy Spirit in your psychology, in your sociology, in your life as an individual, as a husband, a father, a parent, a son, a daughter? There is nothing more healthsome and wholesome than being caught up in the worship of God. Isn't it a remarkable thing that in the whole Bible, maybe I've got this wrong and you can put me right later, in only one place in the whole Bible are we told that God seeks for anything. And it's in John chapter 4, He seeks worshipers. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's an absolutely amazing thing. The one thing we're told that God seeks from us is worship in spirit and in truth. That is, worship in spirit, that is, by the Holy Spirit and in truth in His Son, Jesus Christ. Why does the church evangelize? That God might have worshipers. That's why the primary activity of a church isn't evangelism. The primary activity of a church is worship, and evangelism flows out of worship. Worship gives a tincture to our evangelism, our witness-bearing to Jesus Christ, because worship brings a heavenly tincture into our lives. So, John sees three things. He sees an open door. He sees an occupied throne. And he sees all heaven engaged in the worship of God. What does John's vision have to say to us here this morning? I've more than hinted at it, but let me simply try and tease it out a little. It tells us, first of all, that in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have an ever-present access into God's heavenly presence. It's telling us that in all the circumstances of our lives, no matter how dark or dire they may be, we can run to God in Christ. I think it's significant that at the end of chapter 3, we're told that Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And then as chapter 4 begins, Behold, I looked and a door standing open in heaven. Jesus Christ stands at the door of our hearts and lives and fellowships and says, I long, I delight and desire to come into your dwelling place and sup with you and have communion with you and fellowship with you and delight in you and rejoice in you. 
But then there is this reciprocal note, a door standing open in heaven, and Jesus Christ is that door. And He holds out His arms all the day long. Isn't that one of the great verses in the whole Bible? He stands with His arms open all the day long, for He would have everyone come to Him and find in Him an open door of access into the presence, into the fellowship, into the friendship of Almighty God. I don't know hardly any of you at all here this morning. I don't know your life's history. You don't know mine. I don't know the circumstances of your lives. But I want to say to you this morning, if you're here and there is some great need, whatever it may be, pressing in upon your life, and you've come here looking for help, here is the help God would give you. Run to Jesus Christ, the door, and find that door open to receive you, and find all heaven ready to welcome you. You may say, well, what kind of help will the open door of Jesus Christ give to me? He'll give you Himself. And He will say, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never fail you nor forsake you. You can count on me together. We will win through. I will give you the grace you need in all the circumstances of your life. I may transform the circumstances. I may not. But you can count on this, that when you come to me, I will never turn you away. I will be with you always to the last, and I will give you the daily grace that you need to cope, not only to cope with your circumstances, but to be more than a conqueror in the midst of them. The second thing that we can take from these verses is this, that the circumstances of God's people, however dark and dire, are not fortuitous. Your circumstances and mine, the circumstances of your nation on the threshold of a general election and mine, are not fortuitous. They're not ultimately the result of the decisions of this godless world, because God is on the throne. There is one seated on the throne. He is in ultimate control. He's not wringing his hands thinking, what am I going to do the first Tuesday in November when these Americans go to the election? I'll need to think of something. What am I going to be doing? He has ordained all things according to the counsel of his own will. Gloriously, if most of the time to us, mysteriously and profoundly, because to him belongs the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And this is the theological perspective of the whole of Revelation and indeed the whole of the Bible, isn't it? From beginning to end. There is a throne above every other throne. And on that throne is the Lord God, the Almighty, as the heavenly hosts declare it. 
the one who has all power in heaven and on earth. And we need to realize that the vileness that covers the face of this earth is not a vileness that is autonomous. Evil is not autonomous. Satan is not autonomous. He can do nothing except it pleases God to allow him to do it in the furtherance of his own perfect, gracious, wise, generous, merciful, good, and sovereign will. Satan does not have the last word in this creation, in this nation, or in my nation. Our God reigns. I don't know about your nation. I, I travel maybe three times a year to the U.S., but in my own nation, it disheartens me when I, I meet Christians who are, who are fearful of Islam. Why should we be fearful of Islam? Do you think Islam is, an, is a happenstance, an unforeseen occurrence in the history of the world? Aren't we told that God raises up kingdoms and then brings them down? I'm old enough to remember in the 60s and early 70s the, the worldwide aspiration of the Soviet Union. It seemed so vast with its tentacles everywhere. And then the Lord said, time for you to be brought low, and He brought it low. I remember 1989's watching the television, the fall of the Berlin Wall, thinking, this is amazing. You know, almost in a moment, this impregnable, vast empire, God says, your time is up, and He will do it with Islam when it pleases Him. It is a creature that God has used sinlessly for His own glory to perfect His purposes, and one day He will explain as much as we are able to understand the explanation as to why. It's right to be perplexed, you know. Think of the Psalms. I hope you're acquainted well with the Psalms. And one of the reasons why we should sing the Psalms is because they are, as Calvin puts it, an anatomy of all the soul. And one of the great realities that run through, this, run through the Psalter is the honesty of the psalmist. Lord, why, have you do it? why are you doing this? Why did you do that? Lord, stop playing around. That's what the psalmist actually says. And you think, well, that's a bit daring. He's being honest. He's saying, Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. Even our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross could say, my God, my God, why? In His holy, sinless humanity, He expressed sinless perplexity. But what we need to remember is that all the evil that presently is and ever was is being directed and overruled by the one who is on the throne. The last word is not Caesar's, God is saying. The last word is not Vladimir Putin's or Barack Obama's or David Cameron's or Theresa May's or Zhao Ping. 
the last word belongs to the one on the throne. And you see, theology is intended to breathe pastoral comfort into our souls. That's why we should give ourselves as much as we are able to the study of the doctrines of the Word of God, because doctrine, rightly understood, is the great comfort of the people of God. But then thirdly, the assurance that God is on the throne of the cosmos means that evil will one day be finally and forever vanquished, and God's people finally and forever vindicated. That's really the last two chapters, three chapters of Revelation. But the fact that God, the righteous one, is on the throne is the assurance we have that evil may have its day, but that one day it will be cast forever into the lake of fire. And Satan and all who bear his mark, and that's what 666 is. It's, it's that which is less than seven. It's the mark of humanity. It's the mark of secularism. And all who bear the mark of Satan will be cast into that eternal fire. What a great comfort it is to know that one day the Lord has ordained the destruction, the eternal destruction of evil and its headquarters. One day God will vindicate all His people, and the world, ere it is cast into eternal oblivion, will only be able to say, rocks fall on us, hide us from the wrath of Him who sits upon the throne and from the Lamb, for their day has come. There is a coming day. God has ordained a day when He will judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed, and God has given proof of that by raising Him from the dead. Evil is heading for its omega point of ordained eternal destruction. And you need to be sure that you will not belong to that destruction, but that you will have fled to the open door, Jesus Christ. But there's one thing about this throne that I've not mentioned thus far, but that must be mentioned. It's implied in chapter 4, but it's made explicit in chapter 7, verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the midst of the throne, there is a lamb. You see, God's throne is not a throne of naked power. God is omnipotent, but His power is the power of grace and mercy. And that's the function of the rainbow like an emerald. 
Rainbows in real life are not like emeralds. But imagination is being strained and stretched to the utmost. And of course, we're intended to, to remember that the rainbow was the great sign. Remember in Genesis 9? The great sign of God's mercy that He would no longer again deluge the earth. It was a covenant sign of mercy. And the fact that in the midst of the throne there is a lamb, and that lamb, as John will later say, is the lamb who was slain. There will always be in heaven a marked body. We will receive glorious bodies like unto His. Every blemish will be removed, but there will be one glorified body that will eternally bear the marks of His glorious redemption. And the fact that He, our Lamb of God, is in the midst of the throne is our assurance, number one, that His throne is to the people of God a throne of grace. Remember how the writer to the Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews puts it, chapter 4, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is awesome. He is the only awesome thing in this cosmos. Nothing else is awesome. Food is not awesome. Music isn't awesome. God alone is awesome. And yet, His awesomeness is suffused with an emerald rainbow of grace, which overarches the Lamb who was slain. We can go to that throne of grace in all our weakness and need and find the help that we long for. But there's a second thing, and I'll finish with this. It seems to me that John is expecting us, as we read these words, to think back to another occasion in the Bible where a man saw an occupied throne. And you'll know it, of course, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. A king, an earthly king died, a good king had died. I saw the Lord seated upon a throne high and lifted up. What was the outcome of Isaiah? seeing an occupied throne. It's crystallized in his own words, Lord, here am I, send me. As he beholds something of the revealed glory of God, and he's humbled before God, and he sees himself to be a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and the Lord mercifully comes with coals of fire from the altar of sacrifice and touches his lips. Isaiah is constrained to unconditionalism. 
Lord, here am I. Send me. You see, Isaiah realized that the only proper Christian, and I use the word advisedly, Christian response to an occupied throne inhabited by a God of grace and mercy is to say, here I am. You've redeemed me. I'm not my own. That's why at the end of his glorious exposition of the gospel, when Paul comes to that great doxology in Romans 11:33, and says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. And he doesn't stop there. There shouldn't be a chapter division there. He says, therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There is an occupied throne, and our Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst of that throne, and He is exercising His sovereign dominion. We live by faith and not by sight. The last word belongs to Him. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we bless you together this morning for reminding us that in the midst of the chaos and confusion of this world, you are seated on the throne of the cosmos and that you are bending the cosmos to the doing of your will. And one day, Lord, we shall unitedly say, truly, you have done all things well. Teach us, Lord, to live by faith and not by sight. Teach us, Lord, not to be humbled before mere men, but teach us to be humbled before that cosmic throne with the Lamb in its midst. Lord, fulfill your purposes in us, in this congregation, in this nation, and in all the earth. And may your people never, ever, ever forget that the last word in their lives and in the life of this world belongs to you, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.